everybody, and welcome to Coach's Corner. I have another great interview for you today, and I've gotten some requests that you'd like some of just the Coach's Corner quickies, ones that I do, or I guide you through meditation. So I've got a bunch of those coming up. I'm going to do one on acceptance, and I've got some other requests as well. <laughs> if you have a request, a topic you'd like me to cover on Coach's Corner, just hit me up, send me a DM on Instagram, and I'll add it to my list. Let me tell you a little bit about our guest today. He is a dear friend of mine. I was on his podcast, and Steph and I are actually going to be on his podcast as well. His name is Luke Story. He is a motivational speaker, kundalini yoga and meditation teacher, world-class biohacker, host of the Lifestylist podcast, and founder of the world's premier online fashion school for stylists, School of Style, which he found in 2008. Luke has spent the past 23 years developing and refining the ultimate wellness lifestyle based on the most transformative principles of primal health and ancient spiritual practices, while at the same time embracing the most cutting-edge natural healing and consciousness-expanding technologies. He has tenaciously applied the results of his field research and used them not only to completely transform his own life, but the lives of thousands of fans and followers through his various media channels and speaking engagements. As a transformational speaker and entrepreneur, Luke continues to share his strategies for healing and happiness through his innovative and highly effective lifestyle design teachings and his wildly popular podcast. You can learn more about Luke at Luke Story, and that's S-T-O-R-E-Y.com. Like I said, I love Luke. He's a dear friend. He's like a big brother to me. He has just a heart of gold. I'm so excited him and his fiance Allison are joining the crew in Austin and moving to Austin. And Luke has so much information in his brain. I decided to kind of go a different direction with this interview because I know that meeting his love, Allison, I think he met her and they got together when he was 48 or 49, was a big part of his journey. And he was very relationship avoidant for a while. So we start the interview talking about that. And I think you're really going to learn a lot from his story. Maybe it'll teach you about men or someone that you know, or maybe it will reveal some things to you about yourself. And then of course he gives us some great biohacking tips as well. Before we dive in, let's talk about my favorite superfood company, which is Organifi. You've heard me talk about Organifi. I love their products. So my go-to, so I love them all, but my go-to's are their green juice, which I throw in a smoothie or if I'm traveling, I just throw it in a water bottle. It gives me so many of the green nutrients and herbs that I need. Their red juice is also one of those throw in a smoothie or just drink it on its own. It's delicious. So many antioxidants. In the winter, in these cold months, I'm loving their turmeric gold and their gold chocolate. Oh, so yummy. It's like dessert in a cup, but super healthy for you with all kinds of adaptogens and healthy mushrooms. You can feel good about any Organifi product you're buying. It's organic. It's beautifully sourced. It has the right combination of ingredients in it, and it tastes really, really good. So I encourage you to get your Organifi products, invest in your health, go to Organifi.com slash over it and get 20% off your order, any of their products. Again, Organifi.com slash over it, 20% off your products. And not just your first order. You can go back and restock, try something new. Organifi.com slash over it. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com. And now on to my conversation with my friend, Luke Story. Luke, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you here and even happier that I'm going to have you here in Austin soon. 
Oh, you know it. <laughs> well, I read your very impressive bio and there's lots of things we're going to talk about, including biohacking, but I actually want to start in a much different direction because as uh, we were just about to start recording, uh, we had our first call for a program that we teach called Be the Queen, which is a program based on my journey of calling in my king, calling in my, my soulmate, my partner, my sacred union, beloved, whatever we want to call it. And we have a lot of women on in that program and a lot of women that listen to the show that really want a conscious relationship. And they're trying to crack the code <laughs> in a lot of ways on men and what it really takes for men to turn that corner and be ready to be in a, a sacred container, an intimate relationship, a committed relationship. And I'd love to interview you specifically about your journey into, because you're in an amazing relationship right now with Allison, who I also love and adore. And she's an incredible queen and just an amazing light worker. But I know that commitment was something that you kind of avoided for a while and you danced <laughs> around and, I, <laughs> and weren't so sure about. So can you take us through just to help us understand, and this will also help the men that are listening, because I know we work, I work with a lot of men who think they want a relationship and think they want a commitment, but just a lot so much fear gets in the way and they, they just can't seem to get over the hump of that. So will you share a little bit about your journey from going from, you know, single guy, not wanting to be in commitment to being in this amazing relationship with, with your partner? Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of the greatest gifts of my, of my life really. And it's, you know, as you're asking the question, I'm going, Hmm, how can I answer this in a way that doesn't take seven and a half hours <laughs> or more, you know, I'm 50 years old. So it's been, it's been a, a, a long, mm. sometimes arduous journey to, uh, to arrive at a place where not only am I as fully available for that as I can imagine myself to be, although I'm sure there are always deeper levels of intimacy and, and commitment. Um, but also to be in alignment with a partner who is also at that place in their mm -hmm. life. So it's, uh, God, there's so much to unpack, but I would say if I can put it simply, I think from uh, the male perspective and, you know, this is based on being friends with a lot of males throughout my, my 50 year life and us sort of understanding each other and communicating in ways that are perhaps more revelatory or, or vulnerable than, than men might typically communicate with uh, women. Mm. And uh, I think, you know, in my own case and in the men that I know that have been resistant to the evolution of relationship or have avoided it altogether, um, there seems to be a common thread of childhood trauma of some sort. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously our relationship with our mother and, um, and to some degree, perhaps a lesser degree, the relationship with our father and what was modeled for us. And so in my case, um, I mean, I think there's a lot of different inputs in terms of <laughs> what took me so long to really be um, not only available for the type of relationship I have now, but even just desirous of it in the mm -hmm. first place. Yeah. I mean, it was just... <laughs> a few short years ago, I would see a couple walking down the street with a couple of kids and I'd look at the guy and go, oh man, you idiot. <laughs> what, what have you done to yourself? You could be dating five women right now. What, why did you sell yourself short? You know, <laughs> not knowing, you know, what a, what a, and nothing wrong with that, but, uh, what a shallow, um, and misguided perception that was. Mm. 
so I was a very late bloomer. But I think for me, there were there were two things. A is that my parents divorced when I was very young. I think I was three or something. So I never really had the sense of the nuclear family, the home. I certainly never witnessed a healthy dynamic between um, parents. And there was a lot of resentment on both sides with my parents. And there was a lot of unhealed trauma. God bless them. I love both my parents and we're, we're all great now. But the lineage of uh, both sides of my family has a lot of abuse, neglect, mm. alcoholism, mental illness, just, you know, it's been a, it's been a, a wild ride for <laughs> the mm -hmm. story family and what was uh, my mom's uh, side of the family. So growing up, there wasn't, there wasn't a model of how intimacy worked or how, you know, a, a mutually supportive and loving relationship went a and B, I think, what I learned about relationships from my dad as a role model. Um, and that was partially due to the fact that he went through not only the divorce with my mom, but a divorce with, uh, his second wife. And, uh, I was a bit older, obviously in, in, in the period in which he divorced from the second wife, but it was a really brutal legal battle. Uh, he paid out a lot of money, uh, probably more so than was fair. And I saw him really suffer as a result of that. And so that instilled in me a fear of being taken by a woman, I guess you could say in that mm -hmm, way, mm -hmm. um, you know, definitely eroded whatever trust I had. And then, and then on my mom's side, um, there was, uh, I guess you could say some, a pretty healthy dose of enmeshment in that relationship and, um, emotional incest kind of situation going on where, as a kid and, you know, God bless my mom and she might disagree with this ass assertion, but <laughs> as I've gotten a little older and learned about just some fundamentals about psychology, um, as a kid, it's like a lot of my, hmm, how do I say this? It's like my ability to just be a boy mm -hmm. was kind of, um, cut short by my being there emotionally for my mom and some of the things that she was going through. Um, notwithstanding the, the, the divorce with my dad. It's almost like it'd be so, a surrogate husband, sort of. Yeah, that kind of thing, that mm -hmm. kind of thing, you know? And so there was a feeling of kind of being trapped in that and, and emotionally responsible for someone. And uh, that that's just my experience. So as I moved into adulthood, uh, that kind of set the stage for, well, I don't want to ever be kind of under the thumb of a woman. I want to be free and just do my thing. And I certainly don't want to put myself in a position to be uh, financially raped by a woman down the road if things mm -hmm. don't work out. So I came to the table with all of that baggage. Um, add to that the complication of my very early abuse of drugs and alcohol, which started pre-teens and mm -hmm. uh, eventually you know, led me to... Uh, a treatment center when I was 26 years old. And thankfully I've been able to, um, be sober for the past almost 24 years at this point. And so as I kind of went through my teen years, it was just have fun. And why would you ever commit into my twenties where the drug abuse really got bad? And there was mm -hmm. just absolutely no possibility of having any sort of intimacy with anyone else because I had no intimacy with myself. I was completely yeah lost and delusional and just absolutely unconscious. And, um, you know, as a react, the addiction stuff was, as I see it now as a reaction to the trauma, but anyone that's lived through 
serious addiction or alcoholism knows that even as you're trying to treat your own trauma consciously or otherwise in the, in the, in the lifestyle that you have to live in order to do that, you end up traumatizing yourself and putting yourself in positions over and over again in which you are either the perpetrator or the victim mm. in, in more trauma, you know? So it's like, wow. So by the time I got sober, I mean, I had, I was 26 years old, but I was an infant emotionally. I had no clue how to have relationships with anyone. I mean, friendships, mm. everything was just based on a very dense, deeply selfish, narcissistic um, modus operandi. And so in getting sober, I really had to just kind of re build myself from the ground up. And during those first few years, I knew this was going to be a long answer, but I'll, <laughs> no, I'll, get, I'll, get, I'll, I'll get to the crux of it. Um, and this, you know, hopefully will be insightful for anyone who's in a relationship with someone who's lived a similar path yes. or someone who's in that path now or has, has lived to tell the tale, so to speak. But in all the years, uh, in the beginning years that I was sober, it's like all the focus was on that. It was just like, man, I don't want to die. I need to learn how to just function in mm. society as a somewhat normal adult. And so I became deeply committed to recovery and, and spirituality. And now it's called biohacking, which at the time was just getting the vitality in my, um, in my physiology back from all the years of abuse. But in that nowhere was any interest in, you know what, I should really learn about intimacy and vulnerability and communication and yeah, you're get kind married of more in survival mode. Yeah, absolutely. It was just like, wow, I'm, you know, I'm 26 years old. Uh, it took me at least 10 years to just recover from the 10 years of damage I'd done myself <laughs> from 16 to 26, you know? Yeah. So it's like, by the time I'm 36, I'm basically emotionally and in many other ways, the equivalent of what would be, I guess there's no such thing as normal, but maybe a kid who's 18 to 22 or something, right? So I was very much a late bloomer. And then um, in, in, in lieu of the willingness or the ability to accept the consequences that could come with drinking or doing drugs again to treat my discomfort in my own skin, I used sex, relationships, promiscuity, all of that mm -hmm. as, as further medication, pornography, all of that, you know, just anything I could kind of glom onto to seek some comfort. So mm. Those were the early years. And so to, you know, again, to arrive at where I am now. Or well, it's just, I just, I just want to like stop for a moment because sure, sure. That's, that's, and this is for people who feel like, oh my gosh, I have such a hairy past. I've done so many things. So many things have happened to me and then I've done so many things to make it worse or I've done so many things wrong and they feel like they can't get out of it and they can't get out from underneath their trauma or their addiction. One of the many reasons I love and respect you as a friend and also as a leader is you've really overcome a lot, Luke. You've really overcome a lot and not just overcome it, but you've used it to thrive. You've used it to evolve your soul. You've used it to learn. You've used it to step into your purpose. And it's, it's really inspiring to hear your story because I think some people think and feel their, their life circumstances are so bad, there's no way out. And I'm sure you felt like that at times where you just felt oh, yeah. hopeless. What do you think pulled you through? Because you easily could be dead by now. I mean, in all honesty, what do yeah. you think really was the thing that like pulled you through? Did you have an awareness of your dharma or are you just stubborn? Like what, what got you through? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think even in the years of that, uh, of darkness and the drug abuse and all that, living in the underbelly of Hollywood, uh, for some reason, Christine, I've always had this burning question within my soul. And I guess that question could be summed up. Is there more? Mm. Is there more? What, what is there? And I think even, 
you know, some of my efforts were to just kill the pain of being me um, with the drug abuse. But there was also exploration into consciousness and just, is this all there is? This can't be it. I want to know more. And so I've, I think I've always had a, a thirst for truth and was looking for principles by which to live. And uh, luckily, when I first got sober, I was introduced to a recovery program and really was very willing to adopt spiritual principles into my life and learn how to meditate. And I started to find answers to some of those existential curiosities. And my life started to improve, albeit slowly, but it did improve. And in circling back to the relationship piece, it's like, sitting here now, it's, it's so funny. I was watching a TV show last night and a man and a woman that didn't know each other that well ended up in bed together. And I was watching that. And it was so interesting. The, the reaction I had to it internally, I thought, Oh my God. And they woke up in the morning and, you know, were like doing that awkward kiss <laughs> when you just <laughs> slept with someone you don't really know. And I was like, Oh God, that, that looks so horrible. Awful. Awful. Yeah. There is like, there is, that, that is the last thing on earth I would ever want mm-hmm. to do. And, mm-hmm. and for me, I don't, you know, I, I know, but I don't know what changed. Cause for me, for many years, that was, that was the goal. You know, it's like, yeah. well, actually don't spend the night, just be like, Hey, we can, we can have sex and both use each other for escapism or whatever it is, but yeah. there's no, we're not even going to feign intimacy. <laughs> yeah. We're not even going to pretend because mm-hmm. that's not, you know, I'm not available for that. And I, and I had some self-awareness around that, but to go from there to here, Um, was really a journey of, I think for me, my, my spiritual growth as I, I mean, I don't know, it sounds kind of weird to say, but it's really what happened. I started doing a lot of Kundalini yoga and I was very committed for many years. And the teacher would always talk about how we're moving energy up through the energy centers or the chakras. And, you know, we're getting out of those lower base nature uh, instincts. And I thought, well, that sounds nice. I just, I don't care. I just feel good after class. So I just kept doing it and kept doing it. And then what happened for me is it just became really um, uncomfortable to try to have casual relationships with women. I just started feeling really gross about it, even though I was at that time and had been for many years really honest and forthright. And I was pretty straight up guy because I was sober and I really did my best not to be deceptive or selfish and would just say, hey, I'm available for this type of relationship. If that's what you're looking for while you go husband shop, I'm a great guy to do that with because I'm going to treat you with respect and we're going to have fun, but it's never going to go any... Like, did they, did they, were they actually cool with that or did they say they were cool with that, but not really? (laughs) (laughs) I think uh, the vast majority of cases would have been the latter. Women were like, yeah, yeah, cool. Me too. I'm a Mm -hmm. modern woman. I'm a feminist. Like, okay, that's fine. Thanks for letting me know. I appreciate your transparency. And then inevitably, I, I think, you know, generally, well, most human beings, but perhaps more females are, are really more wired for pair bonding. And yeah. so that would be cool for a little while. And then ultimately, um, historically, the, the woman would tend to get more attached. And then I would have to kind of yeah. try and back out of it gracefully without doing too much damage to yeah. either party. But then what happened was the roles started to switch. And mm. then all of a sudden I was the one like, wow, why am I thinking about this girl so much? We were just trying to have some fun. And now mm. I'm like, my heart is opening. And and it's it, it became like, I've explained it like this before and it's a little graphic, but it's like, I could no longer disconnect my heart from my genitalia. Yeah. It's, it yep. just, I was like, what am I turning into a girl? Like, how is this? <laughs> I, why am I not okay with this? But it's just, you know, my, my, I guess my ethics and morality and, and just my heart started to become so open mm-hmm. that I couldn't, 
I couldn't be close to someone and be intimate with someone without starting to really deeply care about them yeah. and to feel vulnerable. And when I felt vulnerable, I felt unsafe and felt like I was going to get trapped. So there were a few years there where I very clumsily, I realized that was happening and I very clumsily attempted to have um, some committed relationships where I was actually willing to be monogamous and call them my girlfriend publicly and do all these things <laughs> like a normal, yeah. like a healthy, integrated adult man in their late 30s or early 40s would do. Um, and I, it's interesting looking back, I didn't understand the dynamics of love avoidance, of love addiction, of emotional incest as a kid, of abandonment mm. issues, of all the things that I have a pretty, uh, I would say, thorough understanding of now. So I would, I would, enter into a relationship with the intention of just having fun and it being mutually decided that it was casual and without a future. And then feelings would start and I would be attached or maybe even addicted to that person and then attempt to morph the relationship into a healthy, committed relationship. But the issue there was that neither one of us had vetted each other as right. being available for that next level of a mature, healthy relationship. And so ensued a lot of pain and that led me into you know, going to groups for codependency and love addiction mm. and sex addiction and really going like, what the fuck is wrong with me? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. this is starting to really hurt and I'm hurting other people and mm. this is unacceptable. I'm sober. I'm, I meditate. I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> conscious, pretty uh, functional human being. But that one area of my life was just extremely unmanageable. And uh, I was in a lot of pain. Yeah. It was just a few years ago. And so anyway, to sum that up, I, um, I eventually made a decision to be celibate and uh, to stop all, you know, any kind of pornography, flirting, dating. I mean, I wouldn't even look women in the eyes, seriously. And if I did, there was no sparkle there, you know, like no intrigue, no, no flirt. Like, yeah, no flirt. <laughs> none of that shit. I was just like, you know what? I'm at a loss here. I, I, I need to be retaught. I need to reprogram myself. I need to figure out what the hell is going on. And so thus ensued a two-year period of consuming every possible book on codependency and childhood trauma and, and all of that. And, uh, and then after a little under two years, I, I got into a relationship and um, it was much different than the ones I'd been in before. I, I took it very slowly and I tried to be mindful and really intentional about um, deciding the person with whom I was going to forge this new kind of partnership with. And and there was a lot uh, learned from that relationship, but ultimately um, didn't end up being a match. And and there were some great lessons in there. And during the course of that relationship, I, for the first time in 22 years of sobriety, ventured into the land of plant medicines and, and psychedelics. And mm -hmm. that's really, it sounds crazy probably to some people that haven't shared those experiences in the way um, in the ways in which I have, but that's what really cracked the door open for me to become available for the type of relationship I am in now, because I really started to get down to root causes and mm -hmm. dig really, really deep and be mm -hmm. very honest with myself and just see things in a completely different way as anyone, you know, that's had those experiences knows. Um, and I'm not saying that's the only way to do it. That's just, that was the final kind of domino for me where yeah. things got very real. And, um, and ultimately that played a big part in my partnership with Allison. I mean, our second, I think it was our second or third date was a two day peyote ceremony in the desert in <laughs> Joshua tree. And, and we became a couple. We, we hadn't, I mean, we'd like barely made out and we were now a couple and shortly mm. after moved in together and, and the rest is history as they say, but even that medicine experience, uh, opened my heart and, 
and showed me things about myself that were still blocking me. And ultimately what I, what I learned was that my, my perception of freedom that I'd always glommed onto with such desperation, in other words, freedom to do what I want, when I want, sleep with whoever, um, not have to be accountable to anyone except myself. And there's a certain, you know, there's a certain stage of development that I think that type of freedom does have value. Uh, but not when you're 45 or six or eight or whatever I was, maybe I was, no, I was probably 49 at that point or something. Right. This is a little over a year ago. And I realized like the freedom that I had been seeking was such a shallow experience of freedom where now the freedom I experience is just the freedom to be with someone who I trust so explicitly that I can just be 100% my messy, beautiful, perfect self with. And she just loves me more and more and more. The more vulnerable I am, the more I trust her, the more I trust myself, the deeper the relationship goes. And it's just like, and you said it, you know, when we were at the Joe Dispenza thing in Palm Mm -hmm. Springs, you Mm -hmm. said, because that was just um, when I had started dating Allison, actually. Yeah. And that was very new. We were still in that, like, you know, I would text her. She didn't text back. I'd be freaking out. You know, I was like still in that tenuous sort of tentative Does she like stage. Me? Uh-huh. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, um, you said, Luke, you know, when you're, when you meet the right person, it doesn't feel like a drug. It feels like home. And I was like, that's it. Yeah. That is it. Yeah. And, and it, it truly is. And so yeah. to sacrifice that feeling of a drug and that kind of freedoms quote and quotes, um, for what I have now, it's just like, oh my God, I sold myself and, and so many partners short throughout those years. So mm-hmm. now I really, yeah. So, so in closing, and I swear to God, I'll shut up. Um, <laughs> Cause it's such an exciting development in my life. I get really enthused that's about why it. I wanted because, to ask you about it. Yeah. I was so, you know, I, I was just so limited for so long and it all happened, mm-hmm. you know, in, in perfect divine timing as it was supposed to. And mm-hmm. I, I have no qualms with the slow rate at which I developed in that area. But I can say, God, all of the pain and sacrifice and the deep digging of inventory and all of those poking around in the shadows and all of the work that I've done in the past few years. I mean, it's to say it's worth it is an understatement because it's just, um, it's so incredible to be aligned and to be, um, really to choose and be chosen by someone who's so evolved and so mm. conscious. It's just it's so loving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm just in awe at, <laughs> at Allison. Honestly, it just, I, this happens a few times a week. I'll come upstairs and I'll think, um, oh, she's probably pissed off about something because that was a pattern in some of my relationships. Oh, so you're waiting to get in trouble. Yeah. It's like that hypervigilant thing and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm getting better, but it's still, there's some, there's some trauma hooks in there and I'll come upstairs and I'm like, okay, here it comes. She's going to be pissed about this or that. And I woke up, she just, just loves me. Nothing's wrong. You know, she just, <laughs> even if we, even if we have a little moment, it's like, she's so quick to get back to her center and back to reality. Yeah. And our yeah. communication is so, ah, I would say, we're both really good at this point of taking responsibility for our, the projections of our preconceived ideas, notions, mind, ego, past trauma triggers, all that. So it's like, even when a problem arises in a relationship, the first communication is really mostly or um, normally starts like this. This is my shit right here. And this is what I'm experiencing. Not you made me feel 
Right. It's like, wow, this is interesting. I'm, I'm experiencing these really uncomfortable sensations and they seem to happen after you said or did X, Y, or Z. It's a totally different way totally. of experiencing another human being. So anyway, that's, that's the, you know, that's the, the sum of it. it. And, I love it. Yeah. Oh, thank, thank you, you so much for sharing all of that because I think there were so many nuggets in there and there's a couple of things I want to go back to, especially the, the sex and emotion piece. You know, I know for me, especially my single years, I tried to be that super cool after my divorce, like single in my thirties, my sexual peak. And let me just like have sex because it's fun. I tried (laughs) and I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. I mean, there were some rare instances where I knew the person wasn't like, I knew they weren't who I wanted to be with. Like there was something where it was a deal breaker for me. And then I could sort of have sex without getting emotionally involved. But if the person, even if they said they weren't available, if they showed potential, there was a part of me that was like, oh no, I can make him my boyfriend. I mean, this was all very (laughs) unconscious, but it would happen. And I had to get really honest with myself and be like, wow, you know, for women, our uterus is our second heart and they're shaped very similar. And it's very, I think, hard for anyone who has a heart opening to have sex, to be that vulnerable with another person and not have emotions, you know? And then I'm also amazed at how we can be physically naked with another human being and get very intimate physically, but we have so much trouble being vulnerable emotionally. So when I finally really accepted that for me, sex without the heart connection and without the emotional connection isn't really that satisfying at all. And I even went through my own period of celibacy because I was like, it's not worth it. It's just, it's just not worth it. And I think that we, there's, I mean, we could do a whole podcast just on sex and there's so many, hang, we have so many hangups on sex in so many ways and the pressure we feel to be having it. And we're not cool if we're not having it and something's wrong with us, but then it's also tied to our childhood wounding and our trauma. And we're bringing our inner child into sex with us, which never turns out well at all. And I love that you took some space and just took yourself out of the game, which brings me to a question. And then I want to circle back to more that you said about celibacy. That was a big part of Steph's journey too, in getting out of the pattern of woman after woman and escapism and using it for validation and living in the shadows. He, that period of celibacy was really important. And it was really important for me too, because it brought me back to me. There was no distraction. Do you think that's an important rite of passage for us all to go through at some point to, to consciously choose that? For me, it was, it was what tipped the scale. I just, I could not get enough distance from those destructive, addictive patterns without just completely stopping the show. You know what I mean? It's like eject button. We're, we're stopping the movie. You know, it's just, I was so confused as to how I kept ending up in these extremely painful, and I mean painful to the point of just like every childhood trauma triggered at once kind of pain where I couldn't eat, my digestion was um, gone to hell, couldn't sleep. I mean, I was a shell of a man just over Mm. trying to have a long-distance relationship with a partner that was not um, available or appropriate at that time, you know? So it's like, I had to really be honest with myself and realize that I was the one selecting said partners. They weren't yeah. forcing me into a relationship. I would meet one, go on a date and be like, 
yeah, let's try this. And my higher self would be going, no, no. <laughs> and I was just compelled. I, it, it's like karmically even, I think I needed to go through those experiences and perhaps the other parties did as well. I can, yeah. I can only hope, you know, that, that everyone came out of it a better person. I mean, I wish I could take back so many of the things I mm. said and did over the years, but I've, you know, I've made all the amends that I, I could possibly think of in, in numerous ways, energetically and in real time. But I needed a hard reset so that I could identify the patterns and really, really drill down into what they each were because they're all nuanced. You know, you enter into a relationship and in one, you might be more of the needy love addict uh, persona. And in another, you're the detached, cold, selfish, narcissistic, mm -hmm. avoidant persona. And I had been the latter in most of my interactions. But then I started to merge into this other weird thing where like, I'm the one freaking out because they haven't texted me back. Wait, what? You know, it's like mm. had my attachment style changed on me or something, you know? So in order to get clarity about all of that, for me, it was, it was not only like no sex, but also, as I said, just no interactions that were going to give me that dopamine hit that right. distracted, that distracted me from the things that I really needed to look at. So during that time, uh, I went through a thing called the Hoffman process. Yeah, which was, that's such a good program. Yeah, really incredible. And uh, that was like right in the beginning of my my celibacy period as I had exited out of a relationship and just starting to notice, you know, I go into a coffee shop and because one of my, you know, guidelines for myself was no flirting, no intrigue, which means like no liking a girl's photo on Instagram to see if she likes mine back, like none of that shit going into a coffee shop, not looking, you know, at a girl and giving her that little twinkle of the eye and little smirk to see if she does it back. Like right. all those games, I, I didn't realize until I stopped doing all that cold turkey, how much of my energy was so bleeding. So much energetic space, mm -hmm. so much, which yeah, is why celibacy for, is so good because you draw all that energy up or just consciously taking a break from dating. You draw so much of that life force back in. It, yes. It, yeah. 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 And then when I felt as though, and I, I was, you know, working with a kind of a coach um, or mentor at that time who was helping me devise a plan to enter back into the dating world safely uh, for myself and all parties involved, <laughs> um, you know, I, we, we wrote up a plan. And so I wrote, I wrote a vision of everything from the most, you know, infinite uh, depth in a partner and the type of relationship I wanted to the most insignificant preferences of they like this kind of movie or have this color hair or whatever. So just the whole gamut. And I wrote a vision just like you'd, you'd make a vision board or something, right? I made a vision of every attribute and character value and all of those things that I was looking for in a partner. And then I also wrote out um, a list of guidelines and rules to keep myself safe. So when I started dating again, I didn't do the same shit, which is like, have sex on the first date and then mm -hmm. try to cobble together a healthy relationship when you don't even know the person. Yeah. Um, build, building false intimacy by disclosing too many personal things and having first dates that are six hours and you're all caught up in the chemistry and become blinded and idiotic by your hormones. And yeah, you really can't become idiotic with our hormones. <laughs> we can just become stupid. Yeah, yeah. so I, I built all these sort of you know, safety mechanisms that I felt I really needed and also a vision of what I was looking for. And maybe even more importantly, a really honest inventory of what I had to offer as a man mm. in a relationship at that mm. point. And when I started really looking at that, I realized I'm actually at a place of this is after the period of celibacy. 
holy shit, I really have a lot to offer, you yeah. know, because I sort of I did kind of a mirror experiment with everything I wanted in this fantasy partner. And then I really asked myself, well, Luke, can you bring that? Exactly. And, and I really could. And yeah. I really do. And I really am. Yeah. And that was that was kind of how that all worked out. But without really withdrawing myself from the whole game, I don't know that I could have gotten that degree of clarity mm -hmm. that would have allowed me to re-enter into the possibility of a relationship and really, really know who I am and what I want and really to be able to have the discernment and the prudence when interacting with someone else to determine if they were what I wanted yeah. so that I wouldn't settle and I also wouldn't settle with myself, that yeah. I would really show up in the way that I knew that I could if I really you know, asserted that inner authenticity. Yeah. Well, we can either pick partners from our past and our wounding, or we can attract partners that will walk into our future with us based on our vision and values. And I think we do need those. I mean, I know from my own personal experience, I didn't need those times where I was just dating me. There was no distraction because even the energy that goes into swiping or getting ready for a date or the small talk and getting to know someone and are they going to text me? And it's such a distraction. And even if for those of you listening, you may not have an alcohol or drug addiction or something that there's a 12 step for, we all have addictive tendencies and we all have ways in which we outsource our self-worth and look for something to make us feel better. And then we, I think a lot of us buy into the whole like, well, you're not worthy unless you're with someone. So there's that ego aspect too. And I know I'm a much better partner in terms of how I take care of myself in the relationship and how I show up for stuff because I took that time to really learn how to be with myself. And I took that time to really ask myself, what kind of person am I attracting? What do I really want? How am I behaving? Like, am I even attracting something that's in alignment with what I want? Or am I attracting something that my wounded 14-year-old really wanted? And it was really the <laughs> latter in so many instances. I was like, oh my gosh, I need to heal these rejection from boy issues so that I start bringing in a different kind of energy. So thank you for sharing that. I think you know, yeah. for anybody listening, whether you're, you're single and you're really wanting a relationship, really take that time because I know but let Luke and I both be an example of people that found our people maybe later than the the program time of when we're supposed to quote unquote settle down, us taking that time to really become incredible partners to ourselves and heal a lot of those patterns and being willing to look and break the cycles was was a big reason why we're with the partners that we are today. And for those of you that are in relationship where you're like, oh, we're already in bad programs and bad cycles, I, I just always am reminded of something Esther Perel said to me, which is I've been married to the same man three times, meaning she's had three different marriages. They never got technically divorced, but they've reinvented their marriage three different times. This was a few years ago. Maybe it's four by now. And you, you can do that. You can take your current relationship and be like, these are the things that need to go. These are the ways that I need to stop showing up and take responsibility for that. You aren't stuck in a bad relationship. You know, there's always something that we can do to change the way we show up, which then magically usually shifts the relationship instead of, like you said, pointing at the other person and being like, you made me feel this way. I have so much freedom in my relationship when I take responsibility for how I feel. I express my needs, but I take responsibility for how I feel. And one other thing I wanted to highlight that you brought up was plant medicine. And I think a lot of people are scared of it and a lot of people are drawn to it but something you and I both have in common is we did a lot of work before we got to plant medicine. 
lot of shadow work, a lot of unpacking things, kundalini yoga, whatever it was, like there, it wasn't just like going from a sleep to plant medicine. There was a runway <laughs> to it. And I think that's important. Do you feel like the work that you did before you started any psychedelics helped you integrate and enter that experience? Oh my God. Yeah. I, I would, I think about this all the time and it's something I, I share with other people because especially within the context of being someone who for all intents and purposes considers myself sober, uh, which some people in various programs might <laughs> might <laughs> not agree with since I've, I've done a lot of plant medicines and psychedelics in the past couple of years and I don't, you know, recommend that path for everyone, but I, I can't help but um, acknowledge that my life has been completely transformed as a result of those experiences. And that said, for the most part, I've also been very thoughtful, considerate, uh, very discerning about with whom I'm going to share these experiences, the context, the purpose, my intention. I've not gone into many of them, if any, willy-nilly, like, oh, this sounds mm. fun, whatever. Oh, yeah, I'm going to wander into some apartment and do ayahuasca. You know, it's like I'm <laughs> – I really feel, I really feel into it. Um, you know, and I'm sure there's been times where I was maybe less conscious about it, but I think why it's been really to your point so profound for me is the fact that for 22 years, I was really, really deeply committed Mm. to working on myself and, and doing, I mean, shadow work is just, that's every day. I'm, I'm always, fine tuning my ability to be honest with myself and to be insightful about those places in which I'm stuck, unraveling all of these different dysfunctional patterns, um, working through numerous addictions. You know, there was the period of being addicted to racking up money on my credit cards and Mm. killing myself with debt because there was a certain high in the shame spiral of doing that. And then I would do it again, kind of like a gambler. I was never a gambler, but it was like, that's my relationship with debt. And I had to work through that. And um, the sex stuff that we talked about and, um, you know, cigarettes and every other kind of form of self-medicating and also really exploring deeply, not just reading spiritual books, but really applying them and going to seminars and intensives and things like the Hoffman process. Uh, another place I, I went to a couple of times is called um, Onsite. It's outside of Nashville and it's just a deep dive experiential personal development, group therapy, kind of, you know, it's like a rehab for someone who's just emotionally screwed up, not on, (laughs) not on drugs. So, and just thousands and thousands of 12 step meetings of all different focus, um, sponsoring, I don't want to say dozens, but sponsoring a lot of guys for a long Mm, time, mm. working closely with sponsors, uh, that were really pretty disciplined in their approach to recovery. So, you know, there was a real framework. So by the time at 22 years, I went to Costa Rica to do ayahuasca. I mean, I didn't know what to expect because I'd only done, you know, psilocybin and LSD recreationally, I guess you could even, I don't even think that's a thing, but my attempt in doing those substances early on, uh, when I was using all drugs was just to like party. Although I wouldn't advise that to anyone now Uh, at this point, you are not going to have a party. If if you're trying to escape your problems, psychedelics are a horrible way to do it. it Yeah. (laughs) But when I, you know, when I checked myself in uh, to Rhythmia in Costa Rica, I mean, I knew exactly what I was there for. I was very clear about the work that I hoped to do. And I had been practicing the fine art of surrendering my life to God Mm. for 22 years on a daily basis, Mm -hmm. you know? And so 
when that medicine experience started to overtake me, I was not afraid and I was willing and able to go anywhere that medicine or the spirits that guided me through those experiences or God wanted to go. And it was funny because I think there was so little resistance on my part because I was able to really surrender into the experience. The first two nights were just absolute ecstasy and bliss and just laughing my ass off and just feeling so connected to God and just having this sense of liberation and freedom that I could redefine what sobriety and recovery meant for me and that I was finally able to trust myself that, no, I'm not going to go drink. I'm not going to go do coke. Mm. I'm in a completely different universe now. Mm. And so mm. the framework of all of the teachings that I had applied and all the, you know, the the student that I had been and the teacher that I had become were just magnified by every experience I've had with mm. medicine. And, and, um, and they've all taken me just deeper into my relationship with God and, and also allowed me to heal parts of my, my psyche and my spirit and even my body that I didn't even know were there, let alone did I know they needed tending to. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And so that's my only framework of reference, but on the other hand, I've also met people that never did any work on themselves and have been likewise and in, in similar ways also transformed by those experiences. Yeah. I think it, it's such an individual thing. And I think it's it one is. thing that people really have to, to come to on their own, you know, not feel pressured or not feel like I think with anything, whether it be counseling or breath work or plant medicine or a 12 step group, we can't ever go into, this is going to be the thing that fixes me. Because I think yeah. whenever we go in with that, it's like it said, well, first we're going in with the belief that we're broken and we need to be fixed. We're giving our power over to something. But I've noticed whenever I go into any kind of experience, even our second time at Joe Dispenza with that beginner's mind and that intention, mm -hmm. intentions, mm -hmm. but without attachment to the outcome and really can become curious about it, it helps me really let go of control, which is one of the things I've worked on in my life, letting go of yeah. my best friend of control. Yeah, um, me too. Me yeah. Too. Well, I want to drastically shift gears in the time I have left with you because I would be remiss to not talk about one of the other areas of expertise in your life, which is biohacking. I don't know where that word came from, but I, I do like that word. You are just a wealth. Of, I always learn something when I'm around you. I listen to your podcast because you have so many, you talk about so many different topics and many of the topics are on biohacking. How to, well, how would you define biohacking? What would be your definition of it? Well, uh, to your question where the term came from, uh, Dave Asprey of, mm. of Bulletproof fame claims to have invented the term and nobody that I know of has refuted that. I, I've never been a particular fan of the term because I just I, I don't like computers. And I just never, <laughs> I've never been like a computer nerd kind of guy. I, I, fas I fancy myself as being way cooler than that, which uh -huh, I'm probably you are. not. You definitely are. Um, but, uh, you know, the idea for me is just, oh, God, I just – when I got sober, I was so toxic. I, mm. I had to do something to just get out of bed and be able to function. Mm. And so I started doing, you know, I got an infrared sauna and started doing colon cleansing and getting into all of the Chinese herbs and doing acupuncture and making my own kombucha and all, all this stuff that was sort of in vogue in the nineties, you know, getting a juicer, juicing oh, copious yeah. amounts I of did that. fruits and what vegetables. And, and I, you know, and I started to feel better. I, I, mm -hmm. I, I detox little by little. And then, you know, learned more along the way. And so now, I mean, God, if I 
if I look at myself now and some of the things that I've learned and the practices that have really moved the needle for me in terms of um, physicality, God, I'm my own hero. You know, 20 years ago, you went, Luke, look where you're going to be in 20 years. They're like, yeah. oh my God, I'm like, I'm a real mad scientist and, and this shit works, you know? Yeah, you probably look younger than you did 20 years ago. You know, <laughs> I, I, would not, <laughs> I would not argue with that, yeah, Christine. Yeah. Um, but how I define it is this. It's like, I, I really view my body as this sacred vehicle that I have been gifted with by the grace of God uh, so that I have a sensory experience of this material plane mm -hmm. so that my consciousness, soul can enter into this plane, this 3D dimension that we live in and uh, use it for karmic advancement. And mm -hmm. so earth school in the form that we live it requires a body. And if that body doesn't have the vitality and the energy required yep. to complete the earth mission, I'm going to be wasting my time here. And I don't like to waste time. I have a real, I'm really um, a stickler for efficiency in all areas of my <laughs> life. So it's like, I don't want to feel like I'm 50 when I'm 50. I want to feel like I'm 20 when I'm 50. And I don't want to have to outsource the mechanic work on this vehicle to someone else who's quite likely inept or motivated by profit. It's, right. it's like I have my own car and I know how to not only repair that car when something goes wrong, but also really care for that car and, and maintain it in a way that prevents it from going south. Well, that's what I'm going to do. And so to me, the biohacking thing and the health practices are really just about me taking responsibility and stewardship for this vehicle with which I've been blessed and loving this body, taking care of this body, making sure that this body has all of the, the raw materials it needs to keep regenerating and, um, and harnessing and producing the kind of energy required for living the life I want to live. And to enter into a medical system that, you know, with, with all due respect to anyone in, in that system, I'm sure there's some very brilliant and well-meaning people. In fact, I know there are. Um, the system in general, in my perspective, is quite flawed based on the fact that it's primarily focused on treating symptoms rather than root cause. Yes. And so I am my own doctor whenever possible, unless I hit up against something that I just can't figure out, like a broken leg or <laughs> you know, <laughs> needing needing some stitches, you know, mm -hmm. something that I'm just not qualified to handle. I'm 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 I have health insurance. I'm all for going to the hospital. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes, there's certain things that you need yeah. a hospital for and you need a surgeon for. Absolutely. Yes. But I, I I feel the same way. If I can handle it on my own, or I can reach out to more the naturopathic alternative people that I can reach out to. Um, I feel way more empowered, you know? And I, I think now one of the questions I wanted to ask you is it, now when we're in this time where we're really in a lot of ways being taught to be really scared of our bodies and each other. I think that's one of the, the side effects of all the, the COVID stuff is more and more people feel, feel like their bodies out to get them, that at any moment they could get this awful virus and something terrible could happen. And that's not a very empowering or health minded way to live. And so from your perspective, what are the, maybe, I don't know, top few things that people can be doing right now for their health and well being to feel empowered, to, to just biohack their own lives, just some, some, simple, maybe a little bit, some are maybe a little bit more complex 
things that people can just start doing right now that will automatically and almost immediately improve the quality of their health, feeling more empowered, living longer, and upping their immune system. Wow, you're a great interviewer, Christine. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you're really good. Thanks. You're really good. You, you you do a great job. I'm I'm learning a lot from your Aww. your interview style. Uh, well, for me, if I want to find a solution to a problem, I have to go to the root cause of that problem. And if I look at the pathology that affects human beings at this stage in our evolution. Uh, my belief is that all pathology that we experience, whether it be physical, mental, or emotional, is based in the fact that we are completely disconnected from our natural human life way and from one another. Mm. And if you look at animals in captivity, it's funny, I was thinking about this in meditation today because for some reason my mind drifted off into this park uh, over on the east side of Hollywood on Griffith Park, which mm. is, uh, it was uh, the old LA Zoo. And mm -hmm. then, you know, they moved locations and now you can go in the old gorilla cages and stuff. And for some reason that popped in my awareness um, this morning and I thought, wow, isn't it interesting when you look at animals in captivity how quickly they decline. And I thought about the mental illness that you see when you go to the zoo, especially if you look at primates, right? They're just, they're not right in the head. Something's wrong. And I thought about, wow, that's very much um, <laughs> yeah. an analogy for the human condition is that we are so disconnected from a wild human, really a human ape, homo sapien life way that we have become mentally and spiritually and physically sick to the point where we've had to use our engineering skills and our prefrontal cortex to build skyscraper buildings we call hospitals to go house the sick people. And the reason they're sick is because they've been in houses yeah. and offices and cars and next to cell towers and eating food that is not their natural diet that's full of poisons and chemicals, just like you would feed... Uh, the animals at a animal shelter, the animals in a zoo. And I think the disconnect is that we forget that we're animals. Yeah, And we when we forget, our, we're, and that's not to say that we can't be evolved animals and, you know, we don't have to be tribal animals and warring animals and animals that rape and pillage, you know, um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm all for the evolution, but just biochemically, physically, we're animals and we forget that and thus voluntarily disconnect ourselves from the natural environment. And so mm -hmm. when it comes to the solution to what I think is wrong, it's about uh, clean air. It's about pristine natural, if you can, spring water, you know, that's uncontaminated by industrial contaminants or otherwise. If not, you're drinking water that's been properly cleaned. Our relationship to light you know, human beings are walking solar panels. We don't have fur. We're, we're designed to interact with the sun. And so sun gazing, safe sun exposure, um, regulating our circadian rhythm, also getting outdoors, being electrically grounded with our bare feet and bare bodies to the earth, to bodies of water, getting in cold springs, getting in hot springs, um, exposing ourselves to extreme temperatures that would have been present throughout our evolution eating foods as minimally processed as possible, eating an ancestral type diet, whatever, you know, uh, different people have different things they like to eat. Mm -hmm. But the problem is we're not only eating processed food, we're living in processed light that's coming through windows. That's no longer natural light. There's no such thing as natural lighting inside a building mm. because half of the UV spectrum is cut off by glass. So, oh, this beautiful natural light. No, it's actually 
blue light. Add to that EMFs that would have, you know, there's EMFs, just cosmic radiation. There's a magnetic field, you know, in, in, that's present on Earth. But the non-native EMF, the non-native um, blue light that we experience, all of these things to me is what causes us um, to degrade. Yeah earlier than we should. So biohacking to me is just, it's about getting back to our natural state while acknowledging that it's too, we're too far gone to go back. You know, even yeah. if you went and lived, if you went in the middle of the, the woods in Alaska somewhere, you're still going to get hit with satellite EMFs or something, right? Oh, so it's, man, you can't escape the EMF. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's not about living in fear, being paranoid and, oh, you know, everything's going to give me cancer, although it probably will if you're not careful. Um, <laughs> it's like, how can I get outside, get in nature as much as possible? And then for the times I'm inside, how can I use different technologies and practices like breath work and saunas and ice baths and all these things to at least recreate or recreate, you know, we call this thing fun recreation, right? And we go outdoors mm. uh, to a recreation area. We're recreating our natural life way, which oh, is wow. running around yeah. in nature like wild ape humans. So any opportunity I get, I'm outside naked, I'm in an ice bath, I'm getting sun, I sun gaze every morning uh, for about the first 20 minutes as the sun rises, I do breath work. So on the physical side, to me, those are the, those are the places that you start. And then more than anything, I'm realizing just how important our emotional connection to one another, physical touch, hugs, love, yeah. intimacy, looking in someone's eyes, you know, caring about yourself, loving yourself, all versions of yourself from the moment you were conceived to the moment you're in now, because all of those versions of yourself, like a Russian doll, are all still present in your experience in this moment. And ultimately, uh, love and the expansion of our capacity for positivity and hope and faith and a relationship with our creator, however we interpret that to be, that's a cohesive, sustainable, expansive life that's going to affect our physical health more mm -hmm. than just taking the right vitamin and going to the gym a couple of days a week. It's like, how are human beings actually designed to interact with the planet and with one another? Let's learn about that and let's get back to that while still allowing ourselves to um, enjoy the conveniences of modern technology and industrialization. Yeah. And you actually have an EMF course that people can, can get from you, right? To learn more about EMF Damn, and ways yeah. to yeah, get around it. Mm -hmm. Damn straight. Yeah. It's called the EMF home safety masterclass. Thank you. I forget that I made it cause I'm just like on to the next thing, but <laughs> yeah, you can, you can get it at lukestory.com slash EMF masterclass, lukestory.com slash EMF masterclass. It's $149. It's not, you know, it's, it's really not worth buy, it. It's not going to buy me my house in Austin, but you know, it's, it's, <laughs> It's too valuable to give away for free because it's like it's almost six hours of videos and it's it's kind of like I don't want to say for dummies, but it's a really simple way to identify the EMF in your life, in your home, in your environment, and then very practical ways to deal with it from the most extreme paranoid to the basic like let's get a shield for our phone. Yeah, you know, so it's I think it's kind of a good entry level uh, place for people to learn about that because. Uh, to me, the our lighting environment and this toxic blue light and the EMF is, I think, even more harmful than most of the foods we eat, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. I really rarely turn on lights in my house, and I need to replace a lot of my bulbs with the more, um, the the less the less toxic light bulbs. And this is all stuff you can learn in the course. I remember the first time we got in your car when we were in Palm Springs, and you had 
um, a contraption in your back seat to help with the EMF in the car. And I thought, how did I never think of that? Like there's EMF in our car. It's always the Bluetooth yeah. and the stuff that's beaming out. And like you said, we don't need to be paranoid, but we need to be aware, especially with more 5G towers coming. It's like these things affect us. We're humans and we're not, we're not separate from the planet. We're not separate from technology either. Just like the sun affects us. So does a cell tower, you know? So yeah. I, and you've been such a, an advocate of this and really raising people's awareness without putting them into fear. And people, if you want to learn more too, um, you just go binge on a bunch of Luke's podcasts because he's done many on EMF and all kinds of great topics. I don't think there's anything you haven't covered. So thank you. You, you, you really know, actually, <laughs> you know, what's funny, Christine, I, I think that too, I'm like, okay, I've just, I've run the gamut of every possible mm -hmm. niche healing modality or, or, you know, problem that we run into. And I realized when I went and um, when I made the offer on the house in Austin, I had a mold inspection. There's some mold in the house. And I realized like, oh, my God, I've never done a show focused on mold. And lo, and lo and behold, as synchronicity would have it, a couple of days ago, I get an email from a publicist who's pitching an author that just wrote a mold book. And I thought, hmm, let's see. Maybe we can support mm. each other here. I got on a call with him yesterday. He's going to fly out to Austin and like project manage my mold remediation wow. for free. Yeah. And come on the podcast and I'm going to promote his book and his work and we're going to help each other out and educate people about mold. So just when I thought I'd covered it all, I realized I missed a huge piece, which yeah. harms a lot of people and is, is avoidable and fixable. And that's mold. Yeah. 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 Mold's a big thing. I had exposure when I lived on the beach and it's a big thing. It can make you think you're crazy and you don't even know yeah. why. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's brutal. It's oh. brutal. So I'm glad I ended up doing an inspection. So at least I know we're not moving into a moldy house. Mm -hmm. I'm going to oh. fix it one way or another before we get in there. You will. I have no doubt about that. Just to wrap up here, Luke, if you could suggest two things people could do every day, just two things to put into their daily routine that would dramatically improve just their, their lifestyle. Cause I know that's the name of your podcast, the lifestyle is like you really help people shift their lifestyle into one that's more thriving mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, all of it. So just two simple things that we could do daily. Absolutely. Number one, and I'm going to group kind of two things into one <laughs> just to cheat. So I get three, but prayer and meditation. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, this is, this is the biggest gift we have as sentient beings that have awareness of consciousness. And so many of us live in a physical body that is completely bound by our senses where we negate the fact that we are conscious beings in a body mm. through ignorance or avoidance. And um, to me, the number one practice is meditation as a way to identify with the part of me that is other than, although inclusive of, the physical body. And, yeah. you know, as you know from doing the dispensa work, which I've been doing a lot, I do his meditations every day, if at least once, if not twice a day. And, you know, it's just the flavor that I like right now. I've done a lot of different types of meditation and been to India to learn and all the things. But without meditation, there's no way I would be the the man that I am today to just have mm -hmm. the ability you know, once or twice a day to really drop out of my senses and just experience consciousness. Even if I only get it for a few seconds, it's enough. And that combined with a communication of some kind with whatever it is that <laughs> is causing the acorn to become the oak tree. You know, I just use the word God because it's simple, but some people have a lot of baggage around that word. So you could say consciousness, source, Gaia, whatever. 
but there is clearly an intelligence at work in the universe in which we find ourselves. And for me, the meditation and prayer in many different forms. I mean, sometimes prayer to me is just, it's not like talking to God, Jesus, would you please help me find mm-hmm. cheaper car insurance? It's my prayer is just feeling into my physical heart and just expanding that and just feeling the love of God in my life and acknowledging all of the grace that I experience and just giving gratitude for the fact that I have been able to incarnate yet again. And here I am, I'm persisting, you know, I'm making progress, mm-hmm. gratitude and love for myself, praying to myself as my own expression of my own God, not, mm-hmm. not as in like a egomaniacal, I am God, but that I am an expression of God, an expression of consciousness. And really loving on that is something I've been doing lately. Just like, God, Luke, you're so interesting. You're such a unique expression of God. You are God. And I'm, I'm praying to the highest parts of myself. And so mm-hmm. that to me trumps everything. Like if you gave me a choice, you know, Luke, you can eat pristine organic food the rest of your life and never pray or meditate, or you have to eat McDonald's and GMO every day and you can pray and meditate all you want. I'd, I'd take the McDonald's and the prayer meditation, you know, because mm-hmm. this is, this is really the, this is really, these are the energies that give us agency over not only our body and our health, but our entire life and destiny. So that would be number one. And then I'd have to say second would be breath work. I mean, really, as, as you know, and, and Steph knows, I mean, this is one of those gateways to consciousness and all of, and, and, and one of the most powerful ways that one could connect with their own physiology. And so to me, combining the breath work with prayer and meditation, man, if, if one can build those practices into their life, even if just a few minutes a day, you know, not everyone has the capacity to meditate for an hour or do 30 minutes of breath work, but just starting to learn about some of those practices that, that resonate with your belief system, lifestyle preferences and adopting those can, can make huge changes yeah. in, in short order. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love those. Those are, those are good. And they're the ones that take commitment too. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why people, mm-hmm. they don't want it. People ask me and I tell them that and they're like, yeah, what about the biohacking? What pills can I take? Or, <laughs> you know, what PMF machine or red light thing can I get? I'm like, that stuff's all fun. And I love it all. I got, I have probably a hundred thousand dollars worth of toys and tools around the house. And I'm not like bragging. It's just, you know, it's my hobby. It's what I'm into. Some people collect other shit. I collect that kind of stuff. Um, mm. And I love it, but it's all, it's all novel. And without the relationship with oneself and the relationship with source, then we're kind of just whistling in the dark, hoping some gadget or supplement is going to fix us because we have yet to develop this self-discipline to apply the real work, which is the internal work. And it's the work that is endogenous. It's within us. We have the capacity to harness and capitalize on these energies. And it does require much more discipline than popping a pill or jumping on some gadget or taking a sauna or whatever, you know, you got to really commit. And for those people that are unwilling to do that, then I say, great, well, here's some great supplements you can buy at lukestory.com slash store. (laughs) But I would really recommend save your money and just connect with nature, connect with yourself, connect with someone that you love, especially yourself. Yeah. I think that's so true. I mean, I wish that just supplements and a juice <laughs> would fix everything, but it's not that easy. It really takes us being in communion with our lives and shifting our internal state because when we shift that internal state and we shift the emotions that we live in most of the time, I mean, I know when I live in gratitude, I have a completely different day. 
than when I live in fear or worry or overwhelm or the future or whatever it may be. So thank you for those suggestions. Those were really ones that I resonate with deeply. Luke, where can people find you, connect with you, learn more from you? Well, as you indicated so graciously, uh, my podcast on which you have been a one-time, soon-to-be two-time guest is called The Mm -hmm. Lifestylist, three words, The Lifestylist. And I've interviewed some incredible people uh, like Joe Dispenza and Bruce Lipton and tons of uh, scientists, physicists, biologists, nerds, experts, biohackers, spiritual teachers, meditation teachers. It's it's kind of a, a one and done um, representation of all things that I'm passionate about. And then my main site is lukestory.com, S-T-O-R-E-Y. And then uh, my most active social media account until I get censored for <laughs> expressing some of my views about our current predicament, uh, is, uh, I shouldn't even manifest that actually. I'm yeah. never going to get kicked off. No. Um, but you know, I'm watching a lot of people kind of get depersoned for having a contrary opinion, but, mm. uh, Instagram is my home base and that's at Luke story, S T O R E Y. Mm. Thank you, Luke. I, you've, you've taught me so much. I've learned so much from you, both from being your friend and listening to your podcast. And I so appreciate your open heart. I I see how you show up for your queen and how you're in this beautiful sacred partnership with Allison. And I also see the way you show up as a friend and so happy that you're going to be moving here. Thank you so much for the work that you do in the world. Right on. Thank you so much. It's really fun to have this conversation with you. 